Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Former T.R. Miller head football coach Jamie Riggs shares his views on all aspects of football after a 40-year Hall of Fame high school career. Coach Riggs and his guests will discuss the latest on the local high school and college teams, the current issues that are dominating high school, college, and NFL football, as well as reliving some of the classic moments and history of the game with the people that made it happen. This is A Minute with Coach Riggs. I want to welcome you to uh, episode number 12 of A Minute with Coach Riggs, and uh, I am uh, honored today to have with me david jennings and uh on the uh on the on the podcast once again we are podcasting. i think we're actually both in bruton alabama this time and we yes, are sir. we are podcasting from there so anyway david nice to have you coach i appreciate you having me on again and i'm, I'm gonna make it a point to enjoy this i got a feeling i'm getting fired after tonight <laughs> I've caused a lot of technical difficulties as far as getting this one going. So let's take it nice and slow. And I want to soak it all in one more time. All right, David. So uh, it, just in, in, in talking here to, to start with, we uh, had a little conversation and we decided that, uh, you know, since uh, February is Black History Month, that we wanted to talk some about the contributions that uh, black coaches have made uh, at T.R. Miller down through the years, which is, which has been immense. You know, sometimes um, I think we've all known down through the years one of the strength of the athletic program at Miller was always the assistant coaches, you know, certainly in football, and then obviously they coached a lot of other things. And sometimes some of those guys get forgotten after a few years because some of them came and just stayed a short time. Anyway, I thought it'd be a good good time now to, uh, you know, just to, to talk about some of those guys and uh, and remember some of them. Coach, before as we get started, uh, I want you to go back and, if you don't mind, and, and kind of set the stage as far as when Bruton City Schools integrated, that uh, you know, that put us all together the way we should have been, the way we are now, the way we're we're, we're proud to be, and that'll kind of set the stage moving forward, and we can kind of create a timeline that way, if if you don't mind doing that. Yeah, I was um when when we did full integration was in the fall of nineteen seventy. I was a freshman at uh, T.R. Miller High School, everything about the integration process had been slow. It was, I think, in one sense, it was slow for, for good reason. There was, there was no book on this. There was no, uh, you know, there were no rules on how to go about doing all this, and everybody's kind of flying by the seat of their pants on this. We all knew that by the fall of 1970 that we were going to all be at, in school together. And so we'd had freedom of choice for at least, I think, at least a couple of years before that were basically, well, you're a white student or black student. You could go to whatever school you want to. And we had a few black students that came over. I think, uh, I know when I was in the seventh grade, I think we had some black students that came over that were in our class, you know, that, that started school when we were at the old junior high school. But in the fall of 1970, we were all going together. And it was a nervous time. And, uh, again, primarily just because of the uncertainty of it. Yes, sir. And, and... It's easy now to go back and criticize things sometime from from fifty years ago, but it was it was a different world we were living in, and uh, some different times. And uh, the the interest of everyone, the white community and the black community in Bruton, was that we all be able to go to school together, and that everybody be able to do that safely. And when you're talking about that, it's really people on the outside that cause issues sometimes, um, not on on the inside. And I can tell you that when we started school that fall, I was ninth grade. I was, you know, I had all I can handle with school and football. I can tell you that. We just, you know, there was a lot of concern about about what was going to happen, how things were going to work out. I can tell you that the um, school system spent a lot of time you know, planning this because they knew it was going to happen. You know, they had they had a couple of years, two or three years to kind of help plan all of this. Anyway, to make a long story short, that fall um, when schools started, there were some schools that had some problems. You know, there was some fighting going on and, and things like that. In Bruton, when we started to school, you know, there were eventually there were some, we had, I think we had a couple of bomb threats they would clear the school and clear us out, you know, very much like they would do for a fire drill or something. They would clear us all out of there. I think there was some some calls at some point in time 
some rumors about there was going to be some fighting or something that was going to take place. And I can remember a couple of days where um, they kind of marched us like elementary school students, you know, from class to class, uh, you know, so that, that, that they could see everybody at one time, you know, and that, that nothing occurred. I'm sure there were some bumps in the road. Uh, I never recall at that point in time anybody um, causing any issues whatsoever. I don't remember um, anybody ever not coming to school because they thought that they weren't going to be safe there. The administration and the teachers did a did a great job, and, and the students did a great job. And uh, we just didn't have many issues. Now, again, I'm not speaking from the standpoint of a black student in 1970, but from what I viewed from the long run, it took us a little while to get used to some things, but everybody... Everybody jumped on board pretty fast. And, and, and this is my opinion, and, and I believe this. Uh, I think football had a lot to do with everybody getting along because, you know, we've got white students and black students playing football. We're all T.R. Miller. And when we had a pep rally or we had a football game, we all together. And it was one thing that surely brought everybody in the community together. And I just think football had a lot to do with um, what happened that fall. And obviously there were some good people interested in, in, in that being um, uh, happening and happening, you know, safely for everybody. And it did. You know, it's fascinating for me to hear the historical perspective on, on integration within the school system. I entered the Bruton City School System in 1975 in the first grade. You know, back in those days, there wasn't a city kindergarten. There was more neighborhood kindergartens that each of us in the community, black and white, went to. Uh, so first grade, you know, we're kind of together. And in 1975, that didn't make us the first group of kids to go from start to finish as an integrated school system. But we were certainly in that first tier. And I can tell you as a seven-year-old going to first grade, it was a non-issue. Like, you know, yeah. you, weren't prep, you weren't prepped at the house for it. You went to school, and if everybody played nice, you played nice. And if you had to go out there and roll around on the playground and figure it out, that happened also. So to hear some of the things that happened, and I, to hear some of the things that happened prior to that is fascinating to me because we just weren't wired that way when we came along. And I'm like you, I'm sure things were not perfect, you know, all the time, but I, I don't think we had the issues that were going on in some of the communities, you know, across the country, certainly in the deep South. But, but, but in saying that, one of my favorite podcasts that you have done was when you spoke about Miss Burns over the, at the junior high, the middle school, and, uh, you know, the, the impact she had, the influence she was, and probably most importantly, the educator that she was. Miss Burns had retired before I got to eighth grade, but uh, she taught both my brothers. And, of course, uh, they echoed some of the same things that you did with regards to how she ran a classroom and, the, and, and how she handled the curriculum and whatnot. And it's just fascinating to hear these stories. And as you and I have talked, you know, down through the years about T.R. Miller and, and, and Bruce and how special it is, the one thing that always comes up is just the people. And it's all of us. And I hate to think about, you know, what we would have been had we not been together. You know, so many communities around us uh, had, had a private school ongoing with the public school. And I think that's been one of the real catalysts to our community being what it is is that we, we made it work, even, you know, when it was difficult, I'm sure, you know, back in those early days, the fact that we were together and we stayed together and we found ways to make it work have made us who we are. And I couldn't imagine T.R. Miller or even Bruton being what we are today had that not been the case. Some of the communities are very similar size to us, Evergreen, Monroeville, Atmore, always all ended up with private schools. And eventually, um, it divided the community. Um, it divided the support, you know, for athletics and, and so forth down through there. And because you've got a community that needs one school that has two schools, you know, and there's not a big enough community to do that. Probably in the late 60s, you know, those, some of those people that served um, on the um, city council, mayor, certainly the city board of education, had some hard decisions to make about a lot of things and whether or not there was going to be a private school in Bruton would have been one of those things that probably would have been discussed. And I can tell you that um, the city board of education at the time was convinced 
that that was not in the best interest of our community. That the, what would be the best thing for our community was for all the students to go to T.R. Miller High School and for us all to make it work. They didn't have, the, the issue about the private school didn't have anything to do with money because uh, do you think we could have got up enough money to have a private school in Bruton? You know, that would have taken about 30 seconds. Uh, That's right. But th those people, those men involved in that uh, had the best interest of the city and the community and of the and of the the families and and, and the school children, and they were convinced that this thing was going to work and they were going to do whatever they could see to make it work. So they they rejected the notion of a private school in Bruton that we were we were not going to do that. Fifty years later, as we look at this, we can say that they were a hundred percent right. And I tell you, you exactly, and the foresight they had into make those decisions in the time period they were making them, you know, probably wasn't popular in, in, in every circle, probably wasn't easy to do, but so thankful that they uh, stood by their convictions and, and, and searched their hearts and did what they did. Because I mentioned just a moment ago, we wouldn't be what we are had we gone that other direction. I'm convinced of that. Uh, and, and, and the fact that we, we did make it happen and did make it work, I think we're the better for it. I think, interestingly enough, the private school that we did have in our community was an African-American private school. So yeah. normal. You know, which other communities right. didn't have. And that was, a, that was an outstanding uh, educational opportunity, and it served a purpose. And a lot of great students came out of there that have gone on big things in this state and this country. But I think it was interesting that the, one, that the private school we did have was for African-Americans because that was not necessarily the case you know, throughout the deep South in terms of having a boarding school uh, for African-Americans. Well, not on that, David, but, um, you know, our community as a whole, uh, we already had two high schools. We had Miller and Neal, and uh, certainly we didn't need We didn't need another. And, of course, we even had Southern Normal in those days. So I guess we'd start another private school. We'd had four schools in yeah. the Bruton and East Bruton community, which obviously made no sense whatsoever. But I can tell you, that if you look around at uh, T.R. Miller High School today uh, and, and the schools that we have, all right, the facilities that we have, we've talked about you hit that four-way stop up there and you turn left by the football field and you go look at the facilities that we have from the YMCA to the new softball field, the tennis courts, the track, practice field, baseball field, the football field, the whole thing. I can tell you that had they not made the right decision back in those days, uh, we wouldn't have all that today. I'm convinced of that. Uh, nothing like that we've had. And all the, the great things that have been accomplished academically, uh, in music, band, and in athletics that we've seen, you know, in the last 50 or so years would be a lot less. And so I, I just think we're really thankful to the people who did that, to people who went through some hard times up there that first year, you know, because... Another thing about those folks is, you know, there were some phone calls about, you know, like I said, about this is going to happen or a bomb threat or something like that. And they handled them. They handled them the right way. The police handled them the right way. And um, at the end of the day, they didn't panic everybody, but they made sure everybody was safe. And they just made a lot of good decisions. And it allowed us to go ahead and do school and to do athletics and, and just look where it's been during the course of time. So we feel feel really good about that. Well, Coach, when, you know, with it being Black History Month and there's, there's not enough time in the day to recognize and celebrate all the people who have made an impact and, and made a difference in, in our high school here at T.R. Miller, but I kind of wanted to pick your brain a little bit and get you to speak a little bit more to, to some of the contributions that, that have been made by so many and I wanted to start with some of the coaches. We might get to some of the players a little bit later and some of the staff and whatnot. But the, to my knowledge, and I think I'm correct in saying this, the first African-American coach at T.R. Miller was Coach Mike McLeod. Uh, coach McLeod came when I was in the third grade. That had to put him in the mid to late 70s. And all we knew about him at the time was he played defensive back for Auburn <laughs> University. So he immediately, he immediately vaulted to my favorite coach on the staff. Uh, the fact that he played football for the Tigers. But uh, I, I think that might have been the time after you had graduated or offered college. But I'm pretty sure Coach McLeod was the first African-American coach at T.R. Miller. I believe that's correct. And that was, uh, I believe it was 1979 and 1980, the uh, football seasons, that he came and worked. And um, uh, it, and it was slow. You know, it, it was 
it took us a decade, essentially, you know, to get our first African-American coach. But everything about integration was slow. I mean, it was. It was just slow coming. But, I, you know, and, and he was a Auburn University football player. Uh, best I can remember, uh, Mike McLeod was a, a, from Montgomery. Uh, he was a walk-on at Auburn and earned a, not only a scholarship but a starting position. And in those days, a lot of times, um, there wasn't as big a pool of, of coaches as there is today. You know, we have so many more sports. we got to have so many coaches today. And um, in addition to that, uh, there just weren't a lot of, of jobs in those days t- uh, because we didn't have so many sports. Uh, schools didn't have that many coaches. It was for a school Miller side, it was common for them to maybe just have three coaches or four coaches at the most on the staff. When we were able to uh, hire uh, Coach McLeod, and I, and the way that this happened most of the time, um, Frank Cotton hired him. Frank Cotton was from uh, Clark County. He, I'm sure, he probably called Doug Barfield, who was the head football coach at Auburn. Doug was from Clark County. They knew each other well. Uh, Coach Barfield had been recruiting everybody from Dow Altman to, at this time, Walter Lewis and, and all those guys. So Coach Barfield and Coach Cotton knew each other well, and I'm sure Coach Cotton called him and said, hey, you know, we're looking for an African-American coach. Do you have somebody come out of school that, that played up there? And that's the way they, they got those guys. They got recommendations from the football coaches. Mike McLeod made his way to Bruton. And, uh, and I will say this, you know, he left here, and eventually he went to Georgia and, and had a really successful coaching career in Georgia over there um, as an assistant for a few years and then later on as a head coach and administrator. I think he's retired now, but he had a, he had a very successful uh, uh, tenure over there. Well, Coach McLeod comes in, and, of course, he becomes the first. He, uh, he, he leaves and goes on to, to bigger and better opportunities after that first season. The second hire, and of course, if you talk about home run hires, I'd have to say Coach Gottner uh, hit a home run with this one was Coach Willie Slater. If I'm correct, Coach Willie Slater came in as the second African American coach, and, and people, you know, probably know him better for being the national champion uh, football coach at Tuskegee. But what a career he's had! Wow, yeah, really. And um, a couple of interesting things about Willie. You know, uh, Willie was a um, great quarterback over at Livingston at the time. You know, and uh, back in the mid-70s, and they had some really good teams over there in those years. And Willie just happens to be from Coffeyville, Alabama, which was the hometown of Frank Cotton. So it's just interesting how all that occurred. I think Willie, uh, after he got through playing at Livingston, I think he GA'd there a year. Then he coached a couple of years up around Birmingham, I think maybe at Jess Lanier out there at Bessemer or somewhere. And that's where, where he was when we hired him to, uh, to come to Bruton. He was he was the coach here. I think Willie was here in nineteen the fall of eighty one, the fall of eighty two, which would have been Mike Sasser's first two years. That's right. Um, in in Bruton, Willie was uh, first class. I can tell you that, you know, that was the years I was an assistant coach, and we played Miller those years, you know, and so I I I didn't really ever get to spend much time with him. I would see him after the game and talk to him for just a minute or something like that, but. In later years, uh, he he went on to Troy. He coached at Troy. He coached at um, West Alabama. It was probably then, but in 1991, then he coached for uh, eight or nine years, at least up at North Alabama. They won national championships in Division Two while he was the offense coordinator up there. He went over to Jacksonville State, worked at Jacksonville State over there for two or three years. He went to Temple for a couple of years with Bobby Wallace. Bobby had been the head coach at North Carolina, uh, North Carolina, <laughs> North Alabama. And um, Bobby, uh, I guess, talked him into going to Temple. Now, if you don't know where Temple is, it's in um, Philadelphia. And I, I think it was just too cold up there for Willie. He didn't stay up there very long, and he came back and uh, ended up taking the uh, head job at um, – at Tuskegee and was at Tuskegee 15 or 16 years. And now he's at uh, Clark University in Atlanta. Willie was a truly outstanding football coach, was offensive coordinator on some of uh, Troy's championship teams over there in the mid-80s. 
And um, I, it's hard to find anybody to ever say anything negative about Willie Slater. He was smart. He was a good offensive coach. He could do a lot of things. And I will tell you this. I ran into him many times down through the years at coaching conventions. And, of course, occasionally he would recruit some of our players. I can remember when um, when he first went to um, back to uh, West Alabama over there to coach in, in 1991, you know, he came to T.R. Miller High School, and he was determined he was going to sign somebody out of T.R. Miller High School that day. And he ended up um, signing uh, Marcus Redman and uh, Tommy Cox then. But okay. uh, never, ever had a conversation with Willie Slater when he didn't ask about Bruton, ask about T.R. Miller, and always talk about he spent two years here um, how much – he loved T.R. Miller and coaching at T.R. Miller and what it meant to him. And uh, it was pretty obvious that, um, that that was true. And the other thing i tell you about, and I, and I think I'm going to be correct on this, but, you know, when Willie ended up going to Troy, left T.R. Miller and, and, and went to Troy State University, and the way he actually got there, best of my knowledge troy had a ga at the time over there named ronnie cottrell mm -hmm. and if i'm not mistaken they were looking to add a coach over there at troy and i believe ronnie mentioned the fact that willie slater who they all remembered from playing it at, at uh, over at livingston was at tr miller and i think ronnie might have cost us a coach <laughs> on that deal <laughs> but um uh, it was a it was a great uh, it was a great move for Willie and obviously he's done. I say the other thing about him, I mean, he's a smart guy too. Um, you'll notice how many schools he's coached at in the state of Alabama. Um, he he if he's not already, he will be availing himself of the Alabama state retirement system. One of the few yes. college coaches who has spent that many years in there, you know, where he has a he's gonna have a, a, a full retirement for himself. So Willie was a smart guy, and uh, we always. Like I said, when I would see him, I uh, always enjoyed talking to him. He's always asking about Bruton and T.R. Miller. I'll tell you a, a pretty neat story I'd like to share uh, with Coach, uh, with regards to Coach Slater. And I remember when he was here, and I remember Coach Sasher talking about him. I think everybody here knew that he was a rising star in the coaching profession. I think they knew that he was going to be here a short time before he went on to bigger and better things, and he certainly did. But one of the things that I remember most recently about Coach Slater was uh, the last football season that Coach Cotton uh, was alive would have been the football season of 2017. And I had the privilege of taking him up to Evergreen in the playoffs to watch Evergreen and Clark County play. And uh, Coach, uh, I remember going into the stadium, his ballots wasn't real good. He was a little confused on, on where we were and what was going on. To be quite honest with you, I was a little concerned that I was going to be able to take care of Coach Cotton the way he needed to be taken <laughs> care of that night. Well, anyway... We get down and we're sitting in the bleachers on the evergreen side. And I think this was the semifinals. It could have been the quarterfinals. We're sitting down and Coach Slater walks up. He's there recruiting some of the players for both the teams. And he comes and sits with us. And as soon as he sat down with us, Coach Cotton was a different person. They started talking football. They started talking Coffeeville. Coach Slater was so <laughs> appreciative that Coach Cotton vouched for him. And he was trying to get the job at T.R. Miller. And I think Coach Cotton may have helped facilitate that hire, to be perfectly honest with you. But it just showed me what relationships can do, you know, the, the impact that we that, that athletics can have and those relationships that we formed during those times. Here was, here, here was a, an elderly man who was not really having a great night prior to Coach Slater coming up, and then two old friends get together, and football brought it all back. I mean, I, I sat there, and I was amazed. There wasn't a prescription you could have gotten at the medical center that could have helped <laughs> Coach Cotton like Coach Slater sitting down and spending time with one of his predecessors. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, it really was. And, and um, Willie, um, Willie loved Frank Cotton and Mike Sasser. And it's amazing that they go on to do great things sometimes like Willie did, but they still remember who helped them when they started and uh, look up to them and have a lot of the uh, coaching qualities that they learned in those early years. So um, anyway, Willie Slater was, was first class and still is, and he's still coaching today. Always going to uh, have his mark and have his name remembered uh, on the campus of T.R. Miller and certainly appreciate all the contributions he made. If we're staying in chronological order, 
uh, in the fall of 84, Coach Jones came into the picture. And Coach Jones has to be the strongest coach in the history of T.R. Miller. I know Coach Baker may not want to hear it, but I've seen Coach Jones throw some of that weight around the locker room. He was a big, powerful man, and he was a part of that uh, state championship uh, coaching staff in 1984. He was. He and I came um, in the fall of 1983 um, to to coach at T.R. Miller, and uh, he – he ended up helping Coach Rocks with the offensive line, and I believe he coached like the defensive ends or something. And I came to be the uh, the defensive coordinator, and uh, we hit it off pretty quick. Um, you know, he was uh, had a, had a nice dry sense of humor to him, and um, he had just got through playing at Troy. He was a terrific player at Troy, and the man was big, and and he he was big, and um, you know, like when I walked around Brute, like after a game, you know. You, you know, after a game, you know, sometimes it's a close game and everybody's kind of upset and they're hollering at the referees and the other crowd over there, you know, some crazy folks jumping around. If it looked like anything might take place, I went over and stood by, uh, I called him J.J. I stood by J.J. Uh, nobody was going to mess with me when I was around J.J. Good choice. Yeah, he was. But a good coach and, um, you know, could do a lot of things. was real smart. You know, I just remember he was he was real real smart and just enjoyed coaching with him back there in the mid eighties. You know, uh, uh, that kind of thing. He ended up um, leaving here and eventually ended up in Cartersville, Georgia. Coached over there for a number of years, and he's still living over there in the Cartersville, Rome area over there somewhere. And uh, you know, last I heard, he had a restaurant over there. Him I and think his, that's right, Coach. Him and his wife, Ruthie, and um, we remember her. You know, uh, 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 Becky remembers her and uh, back in those days, but they were they were a young couple like we were and just trying to get by every day and coaching a little football and having a good time. But uh, he was he was first class as well, and uh, they did a nice job at, at Troy of teaching him a lot of things. And he was he was ready to coach when he got it. It was his first year coaching, but he was he was ready to coach. And if you want him to learn something, who better to put him with than Donnie Roch? Absolutely. And, and he, he, he learned a lot of things. Some of them, maybe not so good, but he <laughs> learned a lot of things about how to do, a, you know, about how to do a bunch of stuff in Bruton. Yes, sir. If we, if we fast forward just a little bit to 1987, uh, that would have been my senior year. Coach Lewis Washington came in as the head basketball coach for the, for the varsity basketball team. And, uh, to my knowledge, he was the first head uh, a head coach that was African American at Tara Miller. Yeah, he wasn't the first crazy basketball coach we had, but he was. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. He was the first black basketball coach we had. I'm gonna tell you, Coach Washington. He, uh, it, 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 it's wild to me. I, I played for Coach Sasser, Coach Roch, and, and, and Coach Washington in football, baseball, and basketball, respectively. It's in the in the way Coach Washington coached, it was those lessons then you had to get a little down the road in terms of years, like two or three years, maybe four or five years down the road, and you say, I get it now. He had that kind of impact on me. I loved Coach Washington. He coached you hard. He was fair. He made you grow up. If, if you weren't going to be tough, you weren't going to you weren't gonna make it. But uh, I, I thought the world of Coach Washington uh, still do. I don't keep in touch with him like I should. Um, but he, he, he was a great basketball coach. My gosh, he was good. Well, he was still a basketball coach when I got here in 1989, and um, I learned some things from him that really helped me with football. Number one, if you remember, uh, he was a, um, comp- a, a proponent of fast pace, run the ball down the court, shoot it as fast as you can shoot it, either shoot a three-point shot or a layup, and then – give it back to the other team, run down there, try to play a little bit of defense. If they score, don't worry about it because we're going to score a bunch of points and get that thing and, and haul butt back down there as fast as you can. And he coached that philosophy, and that was a philosophy that during that time period there were several of the colleges coming up with that philosophy, and they were scoring all these huge numbers of points. And the first couple of years, you know, I think our basketball was kind of so-so on it. You know, by 1989, he had Bryant Johnson as a senior and some of those guys, and we were racking up some points. Oh, my goodness. It wasn't unusual for us to score 110 or 115 points, yeah. you know. And um, and people were coming out to sit because it was amazing. And what he taught me about that is that you ought to have a philosophy 
you ought to do something well and have a philosophy and be known for it. Mm-hmm. And and that made sense to me. And it took me a year or two to kind of get into that that deal with. But I learned that from him. The other thing I learned from him, the most amazing thing I'd ever seen, I'd never seen a guy coach an entire basketball game and never yell at the referees because that thing was going so fast. He didn't worry about that the referees missed a call or something because he just wanted to hurry up and get the ball and see if we could score two more points. And never yelled at the official. He always coached the next play. No matter what happened, he acted like it didn't bother him. He's coaching the next play. And I learned from that that I was a better coach on the sideline when I, when I didn't yell at the referees, all right, I could be a better play caller. I could I could be better to help my team with a lot of other things, substitution things, when I wasn't worrying about the referees all the time. And uh, so I learned a couple of things from him in, in watching him. But he was an amazing coach. He did some. Uh, I, I was I was absolutely amazed at watching us play basketball back then. And he just had a great philosophy, and he believed it, and he coached it. Well, I can tell you this. I appreciate you saying that about uh, not yelling at the referees because he did it. Uh, it. Some of the times he was too busy yelling at us. And that's something else that you might have picked up <laughs> along the way. You coached the players and said the referees pretty good. Yeah. But he, 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 he was tremendous. I remember Coach Rice talking about the, the, the gate money that we made at basketball games in those days. And I remember if, if you didn't get there early, you weren't getting a seat. It was going to be standing room only. Uh, he, he would pack the gym. Uh, the product he put out there was good. And uh, he he was he was fun to watch, and he was great to play for. My gosh, I love Coach Coach Washington. Yeah, and I would, um, you know, down through the years again, I would see him different. You know, he ended up going to Opelika, and yeah. uh, and coaching up at Opelika for a number of years. Got an administration up there, and went on to be a principal up in the Montgomery area and all that kind of stuff. And if you remember, you know, his son ended up playing quarterback at Georgia Tech. He sure did, Kevin. Yeah. So, uh, and I can remember. Um, Running into him, we went over to a Troy game one time. Oh, this is back, you know, 12, 13 years ago or, or longer. And his son was over there. They were recruiting him at Troy. And, you know, we kind of walked all in together there, and I got to see him and talk to him again. But I would run into him occasionally at different things, and same thing. Never said a, anything but great things about T.R. Mill. was always asking about the people and the folks that were down there. So he – he had a lot of respect for the uh, for our community, and uh, and and he contributed a lot while he was here. He was great. I tell you, uh, that kind of leads us in, into the, the next little segment. I remember when Coach Washington was leaving, and I'm sitting here thinking, mm-hmm. you know, he's got this basketball program going. Uh, things are good. How are we going to replace Coach Washington? Where are we going to go from here? And then walks a guy named Ron Jackson. And as they say, the rest is history. <laughs> I mean, arguably, arguably the best basketball coach in the state of Alabama. Yeah, well, he certainly won enough games. My gosh, has he done it? He's done it with the boys. He's, you know, most recently and, of course, probably did his uh, most of his work with his girls. But coaching girls isn't for everybody. It certainly wouldn't be for me. And what he's done with that program and the impact he's made on, on the young people in our school, you know, we talked about it earlier. There's not enough time in the day to talk about what he has done for, for the young people at Terra Middle High School. Yeah, and I, I still remember um, uh, hiring him. Um, remember him coming down. You know, we were up on the stadium in those days, you know, and yep. I remember him coming in there to see me. We sat down and talked for about an hour, you know, and I told him, you know, you know kind of what we believed in, what we needed, and that kind of thing, you know. And, David, when you hire coaches, um, you never really get what what you're looking for. You, you either get less than you're looking for or you get more than you're looking for. And and sometimes you get less. You know, this guy just didn't pan out to be what you thought he was going to be. Um, I never hired somebody based on an interview. Uh, I, I hired him based on the information that I knew about him, the information that I found out about him from people he had worked with and coached and, and so forth. And that's usually the way I tried to hire folks. Um, when I hired Coach Jackson, uh, he turned out to be 50 times more than what I thought he was going to be. And it wasn't that I had low expectations for him, but um hired him in uh, 1990. And um, the fact that he's still there today and he has 800 and some odd wins, 
I got he's that gonna one. Another, got, yeah, he's going to get another one next Tuesday there in tournament. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, I, we got that one right. And just as doing the thing, let me tell you a couple things I learned from Ron watching him and and so forth. The the one of the best developers of talent I've ever seen. The, the reason we've had girl good girls basketball all these years, we've had some good girls players. But part of the reason we've had good girls basketball players is that he would take someone who was average and he could make them good. And he could take somebody that was good and he could make them great. And he does the same thing with his teams. He takes what really should be an average team and he makes them good. He had a, a, a philosophy. The man believed in defense. Oh, my goodness. And, and he would coach defense and defense and defense. And the other thing that he did, he was he was hard on the girls. And I, I just tell you, I, you know, I watched him practice. I, I I understand that. Every once in a while, we get complaints from parents about how hard he was on them. And all he's doing is he's making them work. And and outside of the football team, uh, from just a girl's perspective, we thought we worked hard with with football, and we did. Uh, he he worked the girls every bit as hard in different ways, obviously, but every bit as hard. And you better be pretty committed to basketball if you were going to play for Ron Jackson. But that's what made him good. Uh, he could co- he could co- he could coach he could coach the game, and and he could I mean the man could could get the job done. Okay, I hear you laughing. What do you? <laughs> I, well, when you talk about, about commitment and, you know, wanting to play basketball, if you're going to play for Coach Jackson, I had a niece who played for him. Steely Ruzik played for him for five years. Uh, he brought her up in eighth grade on the varsity, of course, played through her senior year. They practiced on Christmas morning at 6 a.m. <laughs> I mean, Santa Claus hadn't even left yet, and he's got him up there, and you had to be there. And if you yeah. weren't there, there was going to be a problem. Yeah. And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, that's how much he put into it. He wasn't there to pick up a paycheck. He was there to win. He was there to develop. He was there to work. All those things you just talked about. And I just <laughs> wonder how many coaches can get away with practicing on Christmas morning at 6 a.m. Because Jackson can. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, he can do it. <laughs> And uh, so, uh, but he's, he was, he's something I would, I can remember a lot of times, you know, basketball games, I, I'd go sit over and I like to sit over behind his bench and just yes. watch him and just watch him. And I'm over there one night and it was when uh, Leah Brundage was playing and, and the other girls were just kind of struggling that night. And Leah, she's running around shooting and rebounding and passing the ball and doing, doing their, playing defense hard and doing everything. It was it was one of those real tight games, and they called time out and they come over there, and he looked at all them girls. He says, "You know, you know, some of y'all, some of y'all need to help Leah out just a little bit." <laughs> <laughs> and everybody on the bench just kind of died when he said it, you know. And uh, but uh, he, you know, he had that Ron had that kind of dry sense of humor too. Every once in a while, you know, in the middle middle of those games, and there would be games that I'd sit over there and he'd get mad at them because they weren't playing good. And he might go a quarter and never say a word to them. He'd just sit over and stare at them and wouldn't, wouldn't say anything to them at all. He was, he was really something and still is and um, has contributed greatly, uh, you know, to the athletic program up there. But um, uh, we, we have, we've had great, great girls basketball down through the years because of him. I owe Coach Jackson an apology, and I'm sure you were there that night. There was a night there when his youngest daughter was a senior, and we were playing in Evergreen, playing at Hillcrest. And if we won, we were either going to tie the state record for most consecutive wins, or maybe that game was to break it. I can't remember which one it was, but I came into town to watch the uh, to watch history being made. Hadn't seen a game during the streak. I can't remember if it was 40-something games or 50-something games. It was a bunch. That's when he had both his daughters up there, and we killed yeah. everybody. So I come in to watch the history get made, and we lose the dang thing. Oh, my so goodness. I, I, I slipped out of the and I said, I can't believe I did that to these girls. I haven't been here for any of the win streaks. I come watch one game that doesn't go our way. Of course, they triple-teamed his youngest daughter, and I can't remember if, if that was Deanna or I get them, I get them mixed up. But anyway. Yeah. He was, uh, he, he's been great in what he's done with that program, and he's still doing it. Like I said, they have the area tournament starting next Tuesday up in Jackson, and he's going to win that first one and play Jackson for a third time. We'll see how that shakes out. Yeah, and, and, and I'll tell you this story real quickly, and this is and, – and so help me, this is true. 
So I had a parent call me one time and wanted to talk to me. Parent of a girls basketball player, you know, as athletic director, I, I get those. I'm sit down and parent came in and um, the, 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 the girl playing was a white girl. And so he, the, the parent starts complaining to me that, you know, Ron wasn't treating his daughter right or wasn't letting her play enough or play the position he'd play or whatever. And the, the reason he wasn't doing it was uh, because she was white. And I started laughing. And I'm just laughing, and I can't, I can't stop. And, and 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 you know, he's looking at me. And I said, "Look, let me apologize for laughing, but I want you to understand something." I said, "There's nobody that I know of, including me, who wants to win more than Ron Jackson. And That's right. If 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 your daughter was green, had purple polka dots, and she could shoot the three point shot, she'd be starting." I just want you to know that right now, you know. And so, and so eventually he, he smiled and left and, and, and so forth. But I said, I've never seen anybody who wanted to win any more than he did, you know. So, um, but, um, but we appreciate what he's done all through all these years. He has been fantastic. Moving, uh, if we, if we kind of keep going in a chronological order, Coach, and I think I have this right in my head anyway, when you talk about physically imposing coaches on staff, Jeff Torrance comes to my mind. You know, he was on the 92 uh, national championship team there at the University of Alabama. He finishes up. We get him on staff here, coaches the linebackers. He's done great things. I think he got the administration side of it, but what a lucky get that was for us to have him here with us, the time that he did and the impact that he made, Jeff Torrance. Yeah, and when, when we got ready to to make a hire, um, I, I had known Jeff Torrance ever since he was in high school in Atmore. Of course, his dad had been basketball coach down there. And, Yep. When Jeff yep. was a, a senior, he was going to Alabama, and he was a senior same year Ron Gibson was a senior. And um, Garlton Shadron was a quarterback club president that year. And Garlton, that spring, we were having arts festival or something going on. And Garlton got Jeff Torrance to come up here and Ron Gibson to come up here and basically sign autographs at the art festival. Okay. And so, you know, that was the first time I'd really sat and talked to Jeff, and I got to know Jeff pretty good. You know, then and I'd go up to clinics up at Alabama and um, I'd see Jeff up there, you know, and talk to him. I remember specifically one day uh, talking to him in the hallway up there at the football building one day to see how he was doing. And, and of course, he played up there and ended up getting injured and eventually, you know, graduated. Well, this was about not long after he had graduated, a year or so after he graduated. And uh, so we knew we had a position to make a hire. And I went down to um, see our superintendent, Lynn Smith, you know, we get talking and we start talking about Jeff Torrance. I said, I don't know where he is. I said, let me see what I can find out. So I went and I called uh, Woody McCorvey. Of course, Woody was at Alabama at the time. He's at Clemson now and uh, serves as kind of like assistant head coach at Clemson and all that kind of stuff. Well, Woody's from Atmore too. Some Woody and Jeff were close. And so I called Woody and I said, hey, Woody, where is Jeff Torrance? And at the time, he was up there at Nashville working for somebody doing something, and I was told, you know, Woody, what we were interested in. He said, let me let me see if I can find him. And so uh, he he sends me his phone number. I made a phone call, and I got a coach hired pretty quick And uh, on that. And he wanted to come here. His, his, uh, at the time, uh, it was right before he was getting married. Uh, his fiance, Tori, she was um, – going to be an OBGYN and so she ended up in Pensacola doing her residency down there they ended up living you know around cantonment somewhere down there and Jeff drove back and forth here for five years or or, or whatever it was but um we were fortunate to get him he was first class in every way he was tough he was tough on our players and uh he, he didn't take any monkey business out of them at all when it came to football he was serious business he coached them hard, and he coached them clean, and he coached them good. I, you know, we just he, – he did a fantastic job. He coached from like 98 to 2003, something like that. We had some awful good football in those days, and certainly he was part of it. Didn't he – he got off the field and got into administration, I think, and did some big things there. I think he might be in the wiregrass as a principal or something. Is that right? Yes, he um, he's in Dothan, and um, – he would, you know, when I was over there at Houston Academy, I, I, I would see Jeff every once in a while, talk to him every once in a while. He, um, he, he ended up coaching um, when he left and, and she started practice over in Dothan. He coached at Enterprise for a little while. He actually coached a year or so at Hoover up there and then uh, came back to the 
came back to the area, he, and I think he coached at Northview one time and that kind of thing. And then he took the head coaching job at Dale County. He even had uh, uh, Justin Marshall coach for him over yeah, there. I think yeah. Brandon Wilcox coached for him over there for a year or so. Jeff did that for about a year, and then he left. He ended up getting in an administration over there and had been principal at uh, one of the one of the, the middle schools over there. And uh, he was working again still in administration over there, you know, the last time I talked to him. And uh, Jeff, uh, but Jeff, and Jeff is on the uh, central board of the Alabama High School Athletic Association. Uh, he okay. was, because he was in administration, you know, he was able to, uh, to work his way to that thing. So uh, he's been involved over there and done a really good job for him over there in Dothan, I think. You know, Coach, uh, one of the real pillars of, of, of this program and, of course, of this community, and you've coached with him, uh, obviously, here. You hired him here a couple of different times, and, of course, we're over with him in, in Dothan at Houston Academy. Eddie B., Coach Brundridge, when you talk about uh, guys who've had impact and guys who have poured themselves into young people, they don't come any, any better than Coach Eddie Brundridge. Yeah, you know, I, I would say that um, that as far as just assistant football coaches, uh, teachers, um, coaches of other sports, like you said, being in the community and things, uh, nobody has contributed any more than uh, Eddie has. No. And um, in, in a lot of different ways. You know, I, I always wanted uh, coaching staff that were diverse, and I'm not just talking about race. I'm talking about, you know, I wanted people that were, you know, I wanted older coaches, younger coaches. Um, I wanted coaches that, were, I wanted Christian coaches. I wanted, you know, I, I wanted a little bit of everything because we wanted to be able to reach young people, right. get them involved in football. And for years, I had Eddie Brundage at the um, PE position at the middle school, and I put him there for a reason. And and I say I put him there. I guess the superintendent really put him there. But um, you know, I would have probably you know jumped up and down on the superintendent's desk had he not done what I asked him to do. Uh, I wanted somebody in that position there that could work with young people, was going to promote football was going to make them tough, was going to make them work, and was going to make them behave themselves over there. I don't know how you can get anybody better than Eddie. His contribution, just to, to start with, just to our football program, just based on the fact that he did this tremendous job at the middle school. Um, and people always wanted to know, well, you know, how does Miller keep winning year after year? Uh, one of the reasons is that we, we got a lot of things done at the middle school, and not even necessarily I'm talking about the middle school football program, although we did fine at that. But we got a guy over there at the middle school teaching them the right things, and I just thought that was critical to our success. And, uh, and I've told this before, but I've told you, but the way I hired Eddie Brundage was really, I, I did a guy wrong, uh, <laughs> kind of, but... Uh, um, <laughs> I, I, I knew the name Eddie Brunage when I was um, the head coach over there at Op in the mid-1980s. Um, I'd watch the Troy football replay on Sunday nights. And um, if you watch that back in the mid-80s, you're going to hear his name several times. And uh, had, a, had a great career over there. Probably February, January, February 1991, uh, Doug Barfield was a coach at Opelika. And Doug called me and said, look, you know, so I've got some young guys on my coaching staff i'm trying to teach them some things i'm going to do a little clinic thing up here like on a friday afternoon or saturday morning i, I want to see if i can get you to come and and, and talk about something and uh, i ended up talking about my offense and i took some film and i went up there and he asked a couple other guys up there and one of the guys he asked to come up there too was uh, danny hayes who was the coach at jackson now he knew danny hayes because for a couple of years after coach barfield got out of coaching he worked in his family's furniture store over there in Grove Hill. So he lived in Clark County for a couple of years, which was his home. So he'd go see Jackson play, and he'd go see Clark County play, and so he knew the coaches. And uh, so he asked Danny to come up there. We go up in there on Saturday morning. I'd done my presentation on Friday afternoon. Danny gets up there and starts talking about his 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 weight program, what a, how good they thought it was, what they got done, and all this kind of stuff. And he starts talking about 
you know, I have a coach over there, Eddie Brundage, that runs my weight program. He does the greatest job. He's a tremendous coach on the field. And he says, you know, he's he's the, one of the most valuable people we have. And I said to myself, I'm going to hire Eddie Brundage. Uh, I'm going to hire him. And I didn't tell Danny that. But I said to myself, I'm going to hire Eddie Brundage in, in 1995. And that took me four years. But in 1995, we got a PE slot over there at the middle school that they were going to create. And, and I went to see our superintendent and said, I'd like to hire Eddie Brunage. I explained who he was. And, I, you know, in those days, you had to, I guess, go to information or something, find your phone number. I found his phone number. And I, and I, and I, call, I called Danny Hayes and told him I was going to call Eddie and offer him a job. And Eddie was not, and Danny was not happy with me. And uh, I called Eddie and um, and got him to meet me over there. David, you, you gone back and forth. Well, you never went back and forth to Tuscaloosa. But, Not um, much. Yeah, but um, over there in Thomasville, I believe it was Del Mar's restaurant, something yeah, over right. there. Yeah, I, I, Del Mar's, yeah. I met oh, yeah. Eddie one Saturday morning over at Del Mar's restaurant, and I did as <laughs> good a selling job as I could do on him, and we got him to uh, come to T.R. Miller. And, again, when you hire coaches, you either get, get you usually get less or you get more, and we definitely got more on that one. I tell you, you know, with Eddie B, and of course, you know, you have a lot of good coaches. Not every coach, and I'm not saying this critically, not every coach has a presence. But when you're around him, you feel it. Like you know, you're around a real guy. He's an alpha male in every sense of the word, and and and, and what he's able to do, you know, watching him on your staff, I think he can coach every position. I mean, you know, he, he wasn't an offensive coordinator by trade or an offensive lineman coach by trade. He's a football coach. And I think you had him coach almost every position on the offensive side of the ball, did you not? Yeah, you know, um, the, the thing about Eddie and I is I always thought I could coach anything. A lot of times, you know, if I brought somebody in and he was, I thought, good at coaching this position or whatever, that might be what I'm coaching. But I'd let him coach that. I'd go coach something else if I thought that was going right. to make us better. You know, I had Eddie do the same thing a lot of times. We we bring somebody in. Eddie can coach anything. He can coach any position. And uh, so sometimes I'd ask him to move. I, I'd move him from offense to defense. And uh, he wanted us to win. Yeah, you know, it didn't seem to bother him at all. And, um, you know, one year back there, uh, 09 or whenever it was, I don't remember, I, um, I ended up coaching the offensive line. And um, Eddie knew I didn't need to be doing that. And the next year, he came in and volunteered to coach the offensive line, having never coached it before. How many people would do that? I don't know of any. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he absolutely did a great job. But he's a coach, and he's a great teacher. He can teach. He has the ability to communicate with players, and they played for him. He knows when to be hard on them, when to be easy with them, you know. And uh, Donnie Roch had a lot of that. And uh, mm -hmm. Eddie did a just a great job of that. And, uh, you know, went to Houston Academy. I knew, you know, Eddie had enough years in that he could retire. You know, I had a couple of spots over there. And I went to see him. And, um, and of course, he's the head coach over there now, and he's just done a, a terrific job over there in, in a lot of different ways. So, um, you know, if you – if you gotta you gotta battle somebody, it's gonna be a tough battle. Getting those foxholes, you'd like to have Eddie Brundage with you. Eddie B's a, he, he's a real guy, no doubt about that. Uh, coach, moving forward just a little bit, and, and uh, this next one is one that's special to me just because of some of the relationships I've had with him when he was a kid. Is Juan Johnson? You of course hired Coach Johnson when when he finished up. He had coached, I think, at off. You had him on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, which was a great <laughs> segment, by the way. I certainly enjoyed that. But uh, Coach Johnson, to my to my knowledge, was the first African American alum of T.R. Miller to come back and coach. And of course, uh, what he did here across the board, you know, with, with basketball and football, and and uh, just the impact once again pouring into our young people, being influential, uh, offering the guidance that he did. He was invaluable during his short stay here also. I didn't hire Juan um, because he was a black coach. I hired Juan because he was Juan. And um, he had yeah. obviously grew up in Bruton. He had played for us 
Um, I understood his character, his work ethic, how smart he was. He understood the game. I knew that just from a football standpoint. He had been a multi-sport athlete at Miller and had been a good player in, uh, in all of those sports. And I heard that he was going into coaching. I said to myself, I'm going to hire him one day. You know, the thing about uh, hiring coaches is you spend a lot of time doing that. I mean, I spent a lot of time and, and a lot of preparation on people, knowing who I've gone hiring. A lot of times I knew I wouldn't be able to hire them maybe for two, three, four years, but I knew this is who I eventually wanted to get. And I'd start working on them sometimes. You know, I'd be saying, you know, one of these days I have a job, I'll be interested in talking to you. And uh, I worked on that a lot, but I knew the day I heard he was going into coaching, I would be hiring him one day. He did a lot of good things for us. He did a lot of tough stuff for us. If you need, uh, you needed a coach to go have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a young man, Juan was a pretty good choice. He could explain it to him in language he could understand. And um, the players had great respect for him. You know, all these guys were talking about the players just had great respect for him, but and, and I think it meant something to some of our players, and certainly I noticed some of our alumni and people, um, that Juan was from Bruton. It, it, it meant something. And I'll tell you one other thing about Juan. Never gave Juan anything to do, no matter what it was. Never gave him anything to do that he didn't do well. And if you gave him a, a job to do, you never had to worry about it again. He was going to do it. He was going to do it right. And the final thing I'll tell you about Juan Johnson is when he worked for us, um, he loved T.R. Miller. And he worked for T.R. Miller. He didn't work for Paycheck. He worked for T.R. Miller. And he has gone on to uh, make a very, very strong reputation for himself in the Birmingham area as, as the offense coordinator up there at uh, Hewitt Trustful and uh, is, is just well-respected in a lot of areas of coaching. You know, he's also one of the most competitive people I've ever been around. And I think that kind of came out of his coaching and the position groups that he was responsible for. I think they showed some of that and certainly played to that in, in, in that manner. Very, very competitive person that has served him well in his coaching profession. Yeah, it has. And, um, and you know, he's, um, he, he still has a great future in front of him. You know, he's still a, he's still a young guy and um, he, he, he'll, he'll be a head coach somewhere. He, he's, so patient he's so patient he hasn't jumped on a bad job or something you know he's just so patient that patient's gonna gonna um pay off for him uh, and represents uh tr miller very well even today uh everybody knows where juan is from and he's not bashful about telling them that's exactly right proud of his hometown and we're certainly proud of him that takes us to uh, another T.R. Miller alum who has come home. He's on staff currently. He's been here for several years. Does amazing work as well. Terrence Walker. Coach yeah. Walker's here with us, and uh, he was a great player back in his day uh, in the secondary, played basketball. But uh, he, he's been a great contributor to the T.R. Miller program also. I think I gave him his uh, nickname. I think I was the first one to call him T-Bird. And uh, he, co <laughs> he played in the secondary for me. Certainly one of the skinniest defensive backs in the history of the school, and uh, but was a really a a very good player. In fact, he was so sneaky good that you didn't really you didn't really recognize just how good he was. I can remember going back, you know, after the season was over, watching film that year. I was amazed at how many plays he made. You know, and how many tackles he made. He was a really good tackler, one of the better tackling guys we've had back there. So he was a he was just a really, really good player. And then, you know, he was um teaching down there at um Atmore. He was teaching math down there and Mary Bell hired him and um to come uh, you know, to, to teach at uh, T. R. Miller and I remember the day she told me he hired him. She had that look on her face like, like you're not gonna try to get him to coach now, are you? And I gave I gave her that look. Says, "Well, I tell you what, why don't we start him out like on like the junior varsity? I need some good help down there. We put him down there, and and I knew it wouldn't take him long to move on up and and go. But um, really smart guy, 
really smart guy and uh, has done a done a good job up there and uh, knows um, knows how to coach kids and gets a lot out of them up there. So I'm really really proud of him and the and the work he's done up there at the school. You know, not knocking any of the coaches who have done, who have had hails or drivers ed or PE. Those are classes that have to be taught. I get it. But the fact that he teaches accelerated math and the higher level math speaks to him being a, a true student athlete and the role model and presence he is on the campus for our uh, our kids today. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier about diversity. You won't. Yeah. I, I wanted people to coaches that you know obviously somebody's going to have to teach social studies or math or something like that, and you know I want them in those hallways. They know what's going on with the players and everybody else. They are good um, folks with public relations with like the other the rest of the faculty and, and those kind of things you know they stand out there in the hallway talking to folks most good coaches are good teachers and if you're a good teacher in a classroom uh, generally you're going to be a pretty good coach because uh, you, you can't be a good teacher in a classroom without the ability to communicate to, with young people and communication is a is a big deal, and uh, you don't have to speak their language, as they say, as much as you just got to be able to communicate what's going on. Sometimes you can convince them to speak your language a little bit. So um, that's that's a really important thing. And for to have a coach that teaches math or teaches history up there is a is a, is a big thing. You want that, and um, we've been real fortunate down through the years to to have people like him that can do that. Coach, not trying to put you on the spot. But after no, you wouldn't retired, do that. You'd never put me in the spot. I wouldn't do that. But after you retired from T.R. Miller, Brandon Williams came in. Brandon Williams was here for a couple of years. He was here when my son uh, was in school. Stokes graduated in 2018. And Brandon Williams uh, had impact. Uh, I saw him this year. I came here. It was the first round of playoffs or the second round of playoffs. But he was back up here. And he went to the game. And I remember seeing him inside the stadium at 530, 6 o'clock, just taking pictures. Uh, I think T.R. Miller means a lot to him. I don't speak to him often, but when I do, he always asks about my son. He always asks about some of the other guys that, that, that were here when he was coaching here. But but he was he was great. Uh, he kind of fit the T.R. Miller mold of, of, of pouring into young people, of caring, of being prideful, being a hard worker, and uh, he he left an impact as well. Yeah, and very personable. You know, I, I met him a couple times, talked to him, and he, I thought he was very very personable, which is obviously important in coaching. Well, you know, we've uh, been, I don't know how, how long we have tonight. I could talk to T.R. Miller forever. We talked about that the last time I was on with you. But we've been going for over an hour, and I could go for an hour or more. But uh, this has been a lot of fun, you know, kind of uh, reliving some of the, the proud history we have, certainly the, the impact and the and the contributions that, that so many uh, of our African-American coaches have made, uh, as we kind of said at the onset of this. It wouldn't be the same if we weren't all together. I'm, I'm so thankful that I live in a community and, and we all went to a school where we had the people that made the decision that this is how we're going to do it, this is what we're going to be, and in the end, we're going to be better for it. And I think that has certainly been the case. It's been a great um, 50-some-odd years, you know, uh, if you got from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and, and, and on, not only athletically, but in a lot of things. And, um, you know, you and, and I – I talked to you know, former players fairly regularly. You know, some of them they hit me up about this, that, or so forth sometimes. And uh, you know, I get a text message from one of them, or I'll run into somebody somewhere and, and something. And uh, it's really amazing. You know, uh, they they tell me you know that they get in conversations with people at work or whatever you know, and they'll say, "Where are you from?" They'll say, "Well, I'm from Bruton." So immediately they're gonna tell who they know from Bruton. And then uh, they asked him, did you go to T.R. Miller? And so uh, pretty well known throughout the state for doing things the right way. I think the same thing about the city of Bruton. I think we're generally known that we try to do things the right way. We don't succeed all the time, but we we try to do it right. And uh, so I appreciate all these men. A lot of them I've been able to work with and coach with down through the years who contributed so much to the success of our school and our school system. Yes, sir. All right, David. Well, look, I thank you, and, and I'm going to hang on to you here um, Here in the, the next episode or so. We're going to uh, have a discussion uh, about some, um, some former players and games, and uh, we're going we're gonna to start some top ten lists 
So I need you to be uh, do, a, do a really good job here of thinking. And so uh, one of our few, next future episodes here, we're going to talk about the uh, how we're going to do the top 10 lists, what kind of list we're going to do. And um, we're going to need some good help on that. So um, we need some folks that uh, be willing to help us out with some of that. And, you know, it, it's advice. And I found advice in Brute to be plentiful at all times. All the time. And if you don't mind, I'm going to get the committee back together. We're going to need it. We are going to need it. I look forward to all that. That'll be fun. And I tell you, you I think that the bigger picture of that is the fact that we can, we have a school, we we have teams, we have players where you can actually have a conversation about it. I mean, you and I were talking, I think it was last week. You could ask 10 different people what their top 10 was of anything, and you get 10 different lists. And nobody would be right, nobody would be wrong because we have that kind of history and that kind of tradition. Absolutely. And so uh, well, that's what we hope is going to happen and, and take place. And so you start rounding up the committee. I'll start doing a few other things, getting us some lists, and hopefully on a, here in a future episode we'll, we'll sit down and talk about how we're going to do all this without making everybody mad. That sounds like a lot of fun. I look forward to it, and thank you for being a part of it. All right, David, thank you. Thanks again for listening. This has been A Minute with Coach Riggs.